Hebrews chapter 12. These are really, really rich verses. And what we've been doing as we've been going through Hebrews is taking big chunks. We could take it nearly verse by verse or paragraph by paragraph, but it would be a very long time in Hebrews if we did that. But really, these verses would, would merit taking them one at a time. They're so rich. But as I say, we're not going to do that. We're going to try and take a bigger overview. But let me encourage you, if you've come to a break in your own Bible reading or you're, you're wanting something fresh uh, uh, to refresh your own devotions, Hebrews chapter 12 be a great place to start. Or even Hebrews chapter 11 and work through each of those examples and Hebrews chapter 12 and consider uh, some of the things that we'll, we'll just get mentioning in passing this evening. Uh, so that you can tease them out in your own life. If you're looking for a title uh, for this evening's sermon, it's quite simply, The Race. The Race. And Donegal boasts some incredible endurance challenges. There's the Seven Sisters Challenge, a 55-kilometer race that Billy McMahon has completed. It starts down in Dunluey, uh, way down at the base of Errigal. Uh, and then uh, they run the whole way to Muckish, up and down, just about every mountain in between. And then they turn and come back. And if they didn't cover a mountain peak on the way out, they cover it on the way back. It's an incredible uh, race. Um, and you finish with a run-up and a run-down Errigal. Or there is the one that's quite simply known as the race. You start off with a half marathon. That's 22 kilometers uh, from, uh, from Garden. Uh, and you run to uh, Remelton. And then you kayak to Rathmullen, 15 kilometers. You cycle around the Atlantic Drive, 96 kilometers to Muckish. And you run up and down Muckish. That's another five kilometers. And you get back in your bike for a further 70 kilometers out away out over to the west uh, through Dunlow and so on and then just to finish off you have a nice easy run home to the outdoor pursuit center garden uh, a full marathon weighing in at 42 kilometers if you've added all that up it's about 250 kilometers and by the way you've got 24 hours in which to do it it's a serious endurance event and it's not just physical, it's mental. It is actually mental, but I mean mental in the proper sense of the word. Um, and I can think of several people who've started it but not finished it. And one man said to me, he says, as he threw his bike in the hedge, he says, my head just wasn't in the right place. You've got to be tough to finish it. But there's a, a greater endurance race going on in Donegal. And it's called the Christian life. And you are running it. And it's not a sprint. It's a marathon. It's maybe more like what they would call an ultramarathon. An ultramarathon of faith. Of keeping going and keeping trusting God. And it's easy to start out on. But it's harder to keep going. Some start. Some even start really well. But then difficulties and opposition come and they give up. Or they turn on to an easier path. Or they think of giving up. 
or they slow down and they they stumble and they fall. And this letter is written to such people who are thinking of giving up. It's written to encourage them to keep running. And so far the, the author has spent time convincing them that this is the right race to be running. That was their great concern. Maybe we're in the wrong event. Uh, whenever I was at school, I remember watching uh, one of the other pupils uh, running um, in the 800 meters race and he went off like the clappers. And as he came round the first bend, he was well out in the lead. And you know where this is going. He crossed the finish line, threw his arms up and everybody else ran on. He thought it was the 400 metres. Um, wrong race. And this man is writing to people who think, are we in the wrong race? We should be in the race of Judaism, maybe. Maybe that was the right race. And he's showing them that the root map of Jesus Christ is the right map. It's the right route. He's written compellingly and con convincingly that this is not only the right race, but the race that has been foretold all throughout Scripture, and it's the only one that gets to the destination. And now he's encouraging them to keep going. It's not enough to start well, you've got to finish. And he says the same to us. Don't give up. Don't give up. Many have run this race before you. We've met some of them in chapter 11. They are a great cloud of witnesses, he says. The image that might come to your mind is that of a, a sports stadium full of people. And there they are. They're, they're surrounding the track and they're, they're cheering you on. That's a wonderful image, but it's not actually the right one. Um, because spectators are of limited use to keep you going. Instead, what we're looking at in chapter 11, and when he refers to a great cloud of witnesses, he's thinking more of people who have already run the race, fellow athletes who are gathered at the finishing line, and they're there up ahead, and you see them in the distance, and they're cheering you on, and their very presence, you think, this is doable. If they can do it, look, there's Abraham, and there's Gideon, and there's there's Rahab, and there's Sarah, and they've done it. And there, there's Gideon with all his fears, and Samson with all his flaws, and they kept going. You know what, if, if they could do it, maybe, maybe, maybe I could do it. It's a bit like crossing Karakareed Rope Bridge, and you stand on the brink of that 80-foot chasm, uh, and it's... The waves are crashing and the wind is causing the bridge to sway. And on the other side you see people. And there's this little old lady, you know, who must be in her 90s. And she's crossed it. And there's kids who are four and five and they've crossed it. You say to yourself, well, they did it. That bears witness to me. I'm surrounded by a, a cloud of witnesses. Right, come on, let's go. And that's what we've got here. They're very finishing acts as an encouragement to us. And in fact, they're standing at the finishing line as it were shouting, come on. Because whatever you finish and all the ones that are coming with you finish, we are going to get our prizes together. Only together with us will we receive what was promised. And they've gone before us and their struggles are recorded. And there are a great cloud of witnesses, thousands of witnesses to the power 
of keeping going, of the God who keeps us going by faith. The author says, look up. History is full of people who fought the good fight, who have finished the race, and who have won the prize. Therefore, since we are surrounded by such a great cloud of witnesses, let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us. Let us run. Keep going. It's our turn now. They've run. They were flawed and weak, but they ran and they stumbled and they sprawled their way, believing, trusting to the end. And now it's our turn. And our author has three things, three big things he's going to say between now and the end of verse 17. And we can only really paint with a very broad brush. First of all, he says, run like your brother. Run like your brother. The main command in verses 1 and 2 is, let us run with perseverance. There's a race marked out for us. It's not a sprint. That's what some of these writers, our readers, were thinking. And the writer is a favorite word. Maybe you heard it. Endure. Endure. He used it twice in chapter 10 at the end, and he used it four times in the verses that we read. Endure or persevere. This is not about speed. This is about stamina. It doesn't really matter whether you finish this event crawling on your knees or running at high speed or limping. It doesn't matter. Get to the end. Persevere. Endure. The word he uses for race. Well, you, if I say the word, you'll get a glimpse of what it means. Agon. It's where our word agony comes from. Fight or struggle. And he, he speaks to some of them who, who are gasping and panting for air. He says their, their knees are wobbly, they're bent over, their hands are hanging limp, and they, they, they feel spent. You know, that feeling spent is an interesting thing. I read a book last year, I think it was, on the art of resilience about a guy that swam around the whole of the UK. He says something in it that our body wants us to quit before, or our mind wants us to quit before our body has run out of energy. He says the mind sort of tries to safeguard everything but what they find is it tends to kick in very early with that safeguard. And so we think we're done when we've only, we're only at 40%. And the U.S. Navy SEALs uh, talk about the 40% rule. And uh, Ross Edgley says, put simply, they believe that when your mind is telling you that you're done, that you're exhausted, that you can't possibly go any further, you're only actually 40% done. Think of it in terms of the marathon People talk about hitting the wall at, uh, I think it's about 19 miles. I'm done, I can't go on. And then, if they keep going, they find that they can. Uh, and their body readjusts. And they finish the race quite often, a sprint waving at the crowd. They, they were dying five miles back, but now they're... And these, the author wants these people to get, don't, in a sense, live by what you feel. Live by faith. Live by faith. And keep going. And he tells us two things when it comes to running like our brother. By running like our brother, I mean when he says, fix your eyes on Jesus. Consider him. Think about him. 
And he tells us two things. First of all, he says, run light. Run light. And we'll only mention this briefly. See what he says in verse 1. Let us throw off everything that hinders and the sin that so easily entangles. Throw off everything that hinders. Run light. Get rid of the things that hold you back. You know, nobody runs a marathon with a sack of spuds on their back unless they're trying to prove something. You, you run light. Uh, athletes get special vests and socks and shoes that are as light as possible. They try to get rid of all excess weight. They take fluids, but they, they take just the right amount and the right sort of stuff. They run light. They get rid of anything that would hinder them. And so we're to do that in the Christian life. Alistair Begg uh, writes, Many things that are fine may hold us back from achieving spiritual fitness. We must deal with these hindrances. Some of them will surprise us. And he gives a list of some very ordinary things. He's not saying these things are wrong, but they could become a hindrance. He says our love of gardening, reading or cycling, our commitment to our families may impede our spiritual progress. See, there's a key phrase. Impede our spiritual progress. Things that we could be giving so much time to that they're impeding our spiritual progress. And the writer says, get rid of those things. Not because they're bad, He's going to come to the bad things in a minute, but, but they're hindering you. And you remember how in chapter 11, his big focus was we live by faith. And faith grasps that there is an unseen kingdom whose value far outweighs everything that we can see. And so what we're being warned against here, the, so often the things that hinder us are the things that we see around us. The, the things that we can touch, the things that we can see, the things that we can smell, the things that fascinate our gaze. And they may not be wrong in themselves, but, the, but they hinder us. And he says, get rid of those. Those things aren't as valuable. And so we're to run light. Anything that hampers our commitment to Jesus Christ should go. Paul writes to the Corinthians in chapter 9 and verse 25 of his first letter. Everyone who competes in the games exercises self-control in all things. Run light. But then he's got a second aspect of running light. He says that we're to get rid of the sins that so easily entangles. He pictures somebody uh, trying to run and they've got uh, something tangling up uh, around their feet a lead, a cable, whatever it is, a rope, and it's snaring them, and they're, they're going to fall over. This is different from the things that hold us back. This is something that is wrong in itself. Anything in your life that trips you up every time you try to go forward as a Christian, he says you stumble and fall. And you try to go on again, you fall again. He says, stop, stop, and get rid of the things that are tripping you up. Is that your experience? Are there sins that you need to weed out so that you can run light? One writer, Jerry Bridges, talks about respectable sins. Oh, they're not terrible, wicked things like they do out there in society. 
Oh, but they are terrible and wicked things. Just because society would say, Oh, don't worry about those things. Impatience. Internal frustration. Envy. Jealousy. Bitterness. A meddling tongue. Laziness. Fear of others. Get rid of it. Cut it loose. Or you'll go nowhere. This writer says, We're to run light Endurance is energy sapping. There's no point in making it harder for ourselves. Run light. See, our brother, he ran light. There was no sin entangling him. And he ran light. He, he didn't become enmeshed. Where would we be if the Lord Jesus Christ had become enmeshed in his construction business as a carpenter in Nazareth or if he had said well you know I can do a huge amount of good traveling around teaching if I travel around teaching people the word of God and building up a huge following getting acclaim and the crowd is there anything wrong with teaching the word of God no but it was hindering it would have hindered him from what he was called to do. You see? Where would we be? We need to run like our older brother and run light. But secondly, in this first point, we need to run like him. Or sorry, we need to focus on him rather. Uh, run light and run after him. Follow your brother. I remember hearing uh, the British sprinter Linford Christie interviewed and uh, he said, when I run, I, I focus on my lane as if it's a tunnel and I don't let myself see the people on either side of me. It ends at the winning line. I don't look left or right, only straight ahead. And that's what we're to do. We're to look to Jesus. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, looking unto Jesus. And, and the word that's used here means to look away from everything else deliberately keeping our focus on Him, especially the things that are thrown off, especially the things that are seen, especially the things that are of lesser consequence. We are to look to Jesus. And the second word he uses, consider Him in verse 3, means to, to, to think carefully, to set everything alongside Him and to consider Him, to reckon up and to think carefully about what he did. And so we're to fix our gaze on him. And, and why? Why Jesus? Notice he calls him Jesus. Not the Lord or Jesus Christ. He wants us to focus on his humanity. Jesus was a man as we are subject to the same temptations, the same feelings, the same bodily weaknesses. Ah, but was he not God? Yes, he was God, but he was fully man, and it was in his humanity that he lived here. Without relying on his godhood, he had to live by raw faith, the same as the rest of us. To such an extent here that the, the writer says that he is the, the author, the pioneer of faith. He's the one who, who marked it out. In fact, there's, 
looking to Jesus tells us a number of things. Here's why you should fix your eyes on Jesus. Yes, get rid of everything else. Stop letting your gaze linger on other things that will hold you back. Stop getting tangled up in sin, but look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Because when we look at Jesus, we see the hard work has been done. The hard work has been done. He's the pioneer. That's what that word author means. He's the pioneer. He's the pathfinder of faith. He's the one who has done the hard work. He has hacked his way through the jungle. And he said, come, come, follow me. He's a pioneer who, who finds the route. I'm reading about David Livingstone at the minute. And I tried to find the a route across Africa and to be the first white man to make it right across the continent. And he f- tried to find the best route. Well, we have a pathfinder, a pioneer who came from heaven to earth to be the way from earth to heaven. Not simply an example, but he showed the way. And he says, come and, come and follow me. The hard work has been done. The, the, the The trees have been cut aside, as it were. He's the path. And he shows us that the Father can be trusted. He says, you can trust my Father. Watch on the cross. Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And did he waste his faith? No. He was raised by the Father to life on the third day. He is the one in whom we place our faith. Consider him. He's done the hard work. Look at him. And he's cut this pathway that he says, come, come and follow me. He's done the hard work. See him doing it. Consider him doing the hard work. And say, look, he's done it all. I just need to cling on to him. Consider him. Are you thinking it's too hard? Consider the work that he's done. Looking unto Jesus tells us he's done the hard work. Looking unto Jesus tells us that he's there to help. That's what this little word, finisher, or perfecter, is getting at. What he begins in your life and mine, as an author, he writes faith into your life and mine, he brings to completion. He's the finisher, the perfecter. He's not simply a person who's up ahead, leading the way. He's also one who comes alongside and he helps us towards the finishing line. He's the finisher of faith. We can endure because not only did he write it into our lives, but this verse says he will finish it in our lives. Look to Jesus. He's there to help. He's there to keep you believing. Fix your eyes on him. Read in Philippians 1 verse 6 that he who began a good work in you will see it through to completion. You're thinking of giving up? Consider him. Looking unto Jesus tells us also that the prize is worth it. Who for the joy set before him? Who for the joy set before him endured the cross? The lowest destiny any human being in the ancient world could experience was the cross. It was utterly shame-filled. And he was the Lord of glory. 
and yet he looks past the cross and he scorns its shame because glory lies ahead. And not only does it tell, it, tell us that it was worth it because he saw the value of the prize, but he left there and came here so that you and I could get to there. Oh, it must be so outstandingly magnificent that the Lord of glory would come to the cross and below the cross to hell itself so that you and I, and he, the Lord of glory would be hung fully exposed in front of his pathetic little creatures, degraded and humiliated so that you and I could have glory, so that you and I could get to heaven. Oh, it must be worth it. It must be worth it. Are you considering whether or not it's worth it? Here, Jesus, or the author says, consider him. It is worth it. And as you consider Jesus, as you look onto him, you'll see that he is there to inspire. Consider him so that you do not grow weary and lose heart. The language is that of athletes panting, lying on the ground, spent. And something about seeing Jesus going through all that for you and for me. Does it not make you want to live for him? Consider him. Consider what chapter 1 says, the sun is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being, sustaining all things by his powerful word. That's who he is. And he, he left the right hand of the majesty in heaven and in bringing many sons and daughters to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the pioneer of our salvation perfect through what he suffered. Consider him. He is not ashamed to call us brothers. That's what we read in Hebrews. He offered up loud uh, petitions and cries with tears to the one who could save him from death. He did that for us. He did it for us. Consider him. Oh, you look at him, you think, he did that for me. Would it not fill us with love and loyalty? How could I turn away from such a Savior? That's my brother. He did that for me. That's your brother. He did it for you. Consider him. And as you consider him, as you look to your brother, you'll begin to run in that pathway that your brother has hacked out for you, that pathway of faith, and you'll follow along after him, and he'll come alongside you, and he'll keep you going, and he'll not just be the pioneer, but he'll be the, the perfecter of your faith. Do you think you could endure to the end with such a Savior? Don't look at the trials. Don't look at the world. Don't look at your scars. Consider him. So run. Run like your brother. Run looking at your brother. And then secondly, train under your father. That's what comes next in the section. Train under your father. Ah, but what about all these difficulties? And this word discipline here, and in fact the writer sort of says, right, come on lads and lasses, you're not dead yet. You see that in verse 4? 
in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding blood? You haven't had it so bad. You're not being sawn in two. You're not being uh, stoned to death. You're not wandering about in deserts and in, in wastelands and living in caves. Uh, it's not so bad yet. He says, and you've forgotten something. Don't you remember what Scripture says? Don't you remember who you are? Don't you remember what God is doing? And the big picture here is your Father is training you. This word discipline. Yes, it involves correction whenever we are doing wrong. But it's much broader than correction. It takes in all sorts of training and developing us to help us to grow in the Christian life. It's not simply correction and it takes in all the trials that we find ourselves going through and those trials that we could get discouraged at and those trials that could cause us to give up. He says, don't, don't forget what's happening. Your Father is training you. And there's three things to note here. He says, don't miss the point. Don't miss the point, my son. Don't, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you. Don't make light. Verse from Proverbs says, we make light of the trials we face and the discipline God might bring into our lives like we thought was David this morning. We make light of it when we just put our head down uh, and we just plow on through it as if nothing's happening. Well, I'll just tough it out. Or we, we sidestep difficulty instead of seeking to ask the question, what is God wanting to develop in me? And we just try and sidestep it. Oh, well, if I do this here, that gets me out of it. We make light of the Lord's discipline. Or the opposite danger, he says, do not lose heart. Maybe a person of a different temperament. Instead of thinking, ah, these troubles, well, I'll just, uh, I'll just, leave this job um, because it's too hard or I'll just do this uh, because it's the easy way out. Instead of saying, well, what does God want me to do here? A person who's of the opposite temperament might say, oh, God hates me. God's against me. Oh, why do I bother? I'm just going to give up. The writer says, no, 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 no. Ask yourself, what is God wanting you to learn? It might be that it is discipline for drifting, or for sin that you need to stop, that you need to come back online with, back into line with God's requirements. Or it may be that there are graces that He is seeking to develop in you. Not every difficulty is because of our sin. There may be graces that God is seeking to develop, or there may be strengthening that He's seeking to, to do, or somebody is, is doing strength and conditioning, and their trainer says, you've got to do this, you've got to do these exercises. Think, oh, these are tedious and hard. Why do you have to keep doing them? And He's not interested in you lifting that weight from there to there, and down again, and up and down again. He's not interested in getting the, the weight up onto that shelf or whatever. He's interested in what it's doing to you. And what it's developing in you so that you become strong. Don't miss the point. Don't miss the point of God's training. And if there's no obvious sin for you to deal with, then work at 
graces, work at trusting, work at the fruit of the Spirit. These are what God wants me to develop. How can I be more joyful or patient or gentle or faithful in these circumstances? Don't miss the point. Secondly, don't miss His love. You see that? Do you see how often the imagery of Father and the word Father is used? And Son, my Son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline because the Lord disciplines those He loves and He chastens everyone He accepts as a son. Verse 7, God is treating you as His children. Fathers who love their children see traits in them which they know will cause harm later and they seek to pull those weeds out to iron out those creases before they become part of their psyche a father doesn't do that for other people's kids he does it for his own kids and that's what the writer says here that's what he's doing the father is seeking to display his fatherly care for his children and just yesterday I was listening to an audio book and there was this line in it from Sinclair Ferguson, afflictions become a divine investment in us. What a line. Your Father in heaven is investing in you even in trials and in discipline. He is pouring himself into you for your good. What a wonderful thought. If he didn't love us, he wouldn't bring that trial into our lives. In a sense, an absence of trial would be an indication that we didn't belong. Don't miss his love. We begin to question, oh, maybe he doesn't love me. Maybe he's not there. No, that's not the conclusion to draw. This father is training his children because he knows there is a race ahead. He knows that endurance matters. He's deepening and developing them for the race. Don't miss, don't miss um, his love and don't miss uh, the point. And then thirdly, don't miss his purpose. Don't miss his purpose. So we're fixing our gaze on Jesus and we're seeing him and all that he's done for us. But then we're also looking upwards and we're seeing our Father in heaven and we're grasping that, that as, as much as the Son is for us, in all that he has done and is doing for us. The Father is for us, and he is working in us for a purpose. They disciplined us. He's talking to earthly fathers, verse 10, for a little while as they thought best. But God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. And there's this wonderfully realistic statement. No discipline or no training, we might say, seems pleasant at the time but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. What lovely words there are there. For our good. Human parents do it for what they think might be the best. Not so good at getting it right all the time because we're short-sighted and we don't know what's perfect. But our Father in heaven gets it right every time. There's a, a fantastic uh, hymn that has this great set of verses. When sore afflictions on me lie, he is, though I am blind, he is too wise to be mistaken, too good 
to be unkind. What, what fantastic verse. And then this runs as a chorus through it. What though I can't his going see, nor all his footsteps find, too wise to be mistaken he, too good to be unkind. Hereafter he will make me know, and I shall surely find he was too wise to err, and oh, too good to be unkind. That's our Father, and he has a purpose. It comes out of his goodness, and his purpose is our holiness, and holiness is such a, a stark sort of a word. But it's our Father sharing his very character with us and saying, I want you to have, this is what I am, holy, 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 the angelic beings said as they looked at him. And he says, I want you to share in my holiness. It's that we grow like our brother, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's that we become like our father. Singler Ferguson's full sentence was, afflictions become a divine investment in us as they build character. As they build character, God's character. Afflictions also create the context in which our Lord reveals his grace and glory to us and in us. He's doing something wonderful. He's got a purpose. It's not pointless. The old writer Stephen Charnock said, When the gardener commands his servant to shake the tree, he intends to fasten its roots and settle it firmer in its place. You get it? Shakes the tree so that the roots go deeper, so that the tree is firmer and able to stand the storms. And Charnock asks, Is this an ill will to the plant? No, it's not. He has a purpose. And then we've got this lovely description, the harvest of the peaceful fruit of righteousness. What a lovely thought. A harvest, it speaks of a plentiful outcome. The trials that God brings us through. He says, now, now there's a harvest. And there's two things to take out of this whole point. Two words to, to hold in mind. Love and later. Love and later. God does this. The Father does this for his children because he loves them. Later, there will be a harvest. It's not much fun in the now, necessarily, the writer says. But there's going to be great benefit. A harvest of righteousness and peace. And as we live out our days and we struggle to live for Jesus, we find ourselves growing in righteousness. And I don't want to say the struggle becomes less, but the, there's a growing in righteousness that means we've laid down habits of obedience that make certain aspects less of a battle. And not only that, there's a peace. Peace that comes from a growing trust in our Father. Don't we want to, as we live in this fouled up world, as we come with increasingly broken bodies towards the end of our days, don't you want to have peace? Isn't that what we want? To finish with a confident peace. Our Father says, I'm working on it in you. Trust me. Keep your eye on my Son. Keep trusting him and know this, that I am passionate in my love for you. And I'm training you. I'm training you. And there will be a harvest. There will be a harvest. Run like and focused on your brother. 
train under your Father. And our time's gone, but simply to note, the last section, verses 12 to 17, is run as a family. Or run together. In these, therefore, strengthen feeble arms and weak knees. It's not just strengthen your, your own personal, individually. It's look around. Strengthen feeble arms and weak knees. And as we read through, we find that there are these commands that talk about each other. We're to look out for each other. Make sure that no one, or see to it that no one um, misses out on the grace of God. Look around. Is one of your fellow believers going to miss out? Oh, go and spur them on. Chapter 10. Encourage them. Spur them on. And then there's these commands that are interleaved. There's commands for togetherness in these verses. And there's commands for holiness in these verses. He's saying, run. Run as a family. Encourage each other. Stick together. Be united. Spur one another on. Don't let somebody go off track. Don't let somebody uh, get out of their lane and get into what John Bunyan would have called Bypath Meadow or the enchanted uh, the enchanted ground where, that led people off the track. Do you see somebody going off track? Say, come on back, come on back. Stay on track. Don't, don't forsake God. That's what Esau did. No Jew wanted to be an Esau. Oh, Esau, he had sold his unseen inheritance for a bowl of soup. He had sold the promised land out for a bowl of stew. The thing that he could see and taste. He, he missed it all for that. He says, you see a fellow believer doing that, selling out eternity for a bowl of soup? For something they can see and touch and feel and taste in this world? Oh, go to them and say, no, don't, don't. Come on, come on, keep running. Run with me, run with me. Let's focus on our Savior. Let's keep going. Keep running. Will you keep running? Will you look around you? Look out for each other? Will you fix your eye on your Savior who's cleared the path to heaven and who's saying, come, come, my Father can be trusted. Come, follow me. Keep running, keep running. Will you keep your eye on Him and all that He did for you? Say, well, if He did that for me, and he's done all the heavy lifting and all the hard work. I'm not giving up. I don't care if I have to crawl the whole way. I don't care. I'm keeping going. And we look at our Father. And our Father says, you know what? This isn't easy. But trust me, there's a harvest coming. A harvest of holiness. A harvest of righteousness. And a harvest of peace. Keep going. In our race, there's great certainty. The cloud of witnesses tell us that. There's great help. The Lord Jesus tells us that. There's a great destination. There's a joy set before us. There's great love. There's great identity. We're sons and daughters. There's great good. There's great wisdom. There's great purpose. There's a great harvest. So let us run with perseverance the race marked out for us, fixing our eyes on Jesus, consider him so that you do not grow weary and lose heart. Amen. Let's, for able, stand as we come to God in prayer.
Father in heaven, how we thank you for our trailblazer, our forerunner, the Lord Jesus Christ, who has run that race of trusting you, of that run that race of believing your promises. And he shows to us that you can be trusted. And he has done the hard work of clearing the path, as it were, between earth and heaven. And he says, I am the way. Come and follow me. And Lord, we thank you. We thank you for him. We thank you that he let nothing put him off his stride. Not even the shame of the cross. And Lord, we we pray, so often there are things that would knock us off our stride. Whether it's the things that are seen, whether it's the things that, that so easily entangle us, and the sins that so easily trip us up, Lord, we, whether it's the pressure of the crowd around us and we, we, we bow to the things, the people that are seen and heard and we, we, we are ashamed, we thank you for him who scorned the shame and pressed on for the joy that was set before him. And we thank you for him and we pray that you'd help us to love him all the more We pray that you would help us to trust you, our Heavenly Father, that you're always working for our good and that even your training methods, though difficult and although tiring at times, although perplexing at other times, are always for our good. Help us to keep trusting. And Father, Father, help us to run together. Thank you for the family that you've put us in and we pray that you'd help us to spur one another on to love and good deeds, that we won't give up, but that we will finish the race. Maybe not together in time, but we will still be at the finishing line waiting for each other. And what a day that will be. We long for that day when we all gather together, not on a Sabbath evening, but we gather together at that finish line as the Lord Jesus Christ returns and rewards and makes all things new. And we see everything, that final harvest of righteousness and peace finally fulfilled. And we long for that day. Keep us going to the end, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.